Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File today. The Rat River Manhunt and Chasse of 1930. Background Audio. I Will Find Him. Music written and performed by Chris Martin and Jeff Harvey hosted on PurplePlanet.com Used with permission The sponsor for today's episode of The Felon File is The Salty Heifer Home Store and more The Consignments, Lairways, Antiques and Home Decor Located at 75 Roy Edwards Lane Mars Hill, North Carolina Contact Trish the owner at thesaltyheifer75 at gmail.com Scott, we're recording. Thank you, Victoria, for starting us out again. And as Victoria said, you have found the felon file. An investigation into crime, punishment, law enforcement issues, court issues, and things that I find of interest that I hope will as well. Now, welcome to our second Shade of Blue episode for the new year of 2022. Uh, Today's story, we're going to be looking at something a little beyond the Appalachian Mountains, but still in the mountains nonetheless. Now, these mountains that we're going to talk about today are located outside the United States in the country of Canada. This story was introduced to me by a friend, uh, Rob Palmed, who lives in Canada, and he's given me a couple of ideas for stories that we have done and some I'm still doing some research on. Rob operates a blog on true crime past and present And he's as big a history nut as I am. So he's got some pretty good insights and some stuff and some good leads on some stories that we have done in the past and and we're probably going to do in the future. Thanks again, Rob, for helping us out with these. Canada is the second largest country in the world. Has 10 provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and Labrador. Nova Scotia, Ontario, Prince Edward Island, which is really more than one island, uh, Quebec, and Saskatchewan. And of course, the three territories, the Northwest Territories, the Yukon Territory, and Navant. Probably mispronouncing that. The country of Canada has a real wide range of cultures, geographies, heritages, and all of them have their own stories. The difference between a province and a territory relates to the government. Territories are directly ruled by the federal government there, while provinces have their own constitutional powers. When you're looking at crime in Canada, almost every time what shows up in your research references to the Great Maple Syrup Heist 
has always seemed to be brought up, kind of like Canada is proud of that. The fact that criminals have gone to so much trouble to steal maple syrup appears to be the catch to that particular story. And as you know, really, it's not what you steal that matters to a criminal. It's more in what's in it for them. Canadian dollars, U.S. dollars, or even Bitcoin. It really doesn't matter. Now, this particular theft, the Great Maple Syrup Heist, as it is known, was a theft that occurred over several months in 2011 and 2012, where nearly 3,000 tons of maple syrup, or close to 6 million pounds of syrup, valued in Canada at 18.7 million Canadian dollars was stolen from a storage facility in Quebec. The facility operated by the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, who actually represent 77% of the entire world's global maple syrup supply. Now, when you adjust the numbers for inflation and look at it, from 2011 to 2009, this particular larceny or theft is the most valuable or richest theft that has occurred in Canadian history. And like I said, it doesn't matter what you steal as far as thieves are concerned, it's how much they can get for it. Another interesting story while I was doing research for this, I came, I came across in the Yukon the story of the Sourdough Saloon in Dawson City in the Yukon Territories. Now it's interesting because there you can order what's called a Sour Toe Cocktail, which is basically any drink that you can order there. And it features the addition of a preserved real human toe added to the drink. I kid you not, a real toe in the drink. The drink's origin story dates back to a blizzard in the 1920s in a frostbitten toe that had been preserved in a jar. Someone got the bright idea of serving a shot of whiskey with the preserved toe in it. And of course, it caught on. The original toe from the 1920s only lasted about seven years, according to the story and information from that particular saloon or bar. Apparently, somebody swallowed it. But over the years, several more toes have been donated to keep the tradition going basically keeping the tradition alive, if you pardon the pun. You know, you've heard of donating your body to science. Well, how about donating your toe to the local bar? I don't know. And now as the Sourdough Saloon says of their particular drink, quote, you can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but the lips have got to touch the toe. Okay, well, as interesting as these stories are, we're going to focus on a Canadian shade of blue story from 1931. This would be post-Yukon Toe. In 1931, a man about 35 years old arrived in a location in Fort McPherson, Canada. He said his name was Albert Johnson. Well, Albert hiked out of the area 
to a very remote location on what is called the Rat River. And that's where he built an 8x10 cabin. Apparently looking for solitude and basically being just left alone for whatever reason. He did some minor trapping of some of the game in the area. And as I said, lived in an 8 by 10 foot small cabin that he built by himself. After living there for about a year, some of the native trappers who made their living at trap began to complain to authorities that Johnson was sabotaging their hunting efforts, their trapping lines. They were finding their traps being sprung and then moved to a nearby tree and hung there. The authorities decided to investigate when enough complaints came in. And the day after Christmas, two very experienced Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers hiked out into the secluded area where the cabin was located. Now, even though Johnson was home, and this was obvious by the fact that he had a fire in fireplace and smoke was coming from the chimney, he totally ignored the people that were knocking on his door. He did not even acknowledge them and refused to have any conversation of any type, or at least didn't say anything at all. When one of the Mounties had looked into a window in the cabin, Johnson took a large flour sack and hung it over the window so the Mountie couldn't see in. Now, not to be outdone, of course, the two Mounties left only to return with a search warrant and a few other officers. Officer King and Bernard returned, like I said, about five days later with two other men. Johnson again refused to talk and eventually King decided to enforce the warrant and kick open the door. As soon as he did, Johnson shot him through the wooden door. All the officers returned fire and backed out. Now this firefight broke out and the team managed to return fire somewhat and get the wounded officer, Officer King, back home where he later was able to recover, I'm happy to say. Now Johnson kept the authorities at bay and remained inside his cabin for the next nine days while the Royal Canadian Mounted Police put together a posse and headed that way. Once they arrived, Johnson still refused to surrender and continued his defense of his small cabin by continuing to shoot at the Royal Canadian Mounted Officers. But the Mounties had come prepared for such a situation. They had brought with them not only extra men and manpower and ammunition, but they showed up with dynamite as well. Their intention was to use it to blow the cabin up, then enter and arrest whatever remained of Johnson. Well, sounds pretty dramatic. With some of the documentation that I've read on this particular incident story, it kind of leans the way towards the Mounties were only intending to use dynamite as a distraction device, kind of a 1930 flashbang, so to speak. Their intention really wasn't to blow the whole place up, just to drive Johnson out where they could arrest him. But when you're telling a story, adding a lot of dynamite makes it sound a whole lot more interesting. Now they actually exist photographs of the aftermath of the dynamite used on the cabin. 
Looking at the photographs of the aftermath, apparently the Mounties did use enough of it to blow the roof off the house. Now, entering the partially demolished cabin, unfortunately, the Mounties were met with a very alive and prepared Mr. Johnson. Johnson had dug out an area in the center of the cabin at least five foot deep. Now, this allowed him to be safe from the Mounties shooting into the cabin because he can be below their line of fire. And by shooting over the edge of the hole, he was able to return fire somewhat more deadly while being protected with some good cover. Now this returning fire from Johnson forced the Mounties back out of the cabin, of course, and into more cover. And during this time, Johnson was able to escape into the woods before they really knew what had happened. Now they left to go back to form a posse. By this time, the news had filtered out to the rest of the world by radio and other and media sources. After being delayed because of blizzard conditions, the reinforced posse returned on January 14th. And that's when they discovered that Johnson had left the cabin and pretty much struck out on his own. They were able to continue tracking him with help from some local native trackers. They caught up with him on January 30th. They surrounded him in a brush thicket and Johnson ended up shooting Constable Edgar Millen through the heart, killing him. Mountie Millen was later to have a tributary of the Rat River, Millen Creek, named after him. There is a sign there that explains why the naming took place and, and a little bit about the manhunt. Now Johnson had clearly decided he was going further back into the wilderness, but the Royal Canadian Mounted Police blocked the only two passes over the Richardson Mountains. But that didn't stop Johnson, who ended up climbing a 7,000 foot peak, almost vertical, and come down on the other side. And once again, he disappeared. Now, it was the media that gave Johnson the nickname the Mad Trapper of Rat River. People were amazed to know that this man could have survived for so long in nearly 50 degrees below zero weather and lived through two very extreme blizzards. On the 17th of February, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police tracked Johnson down again at the frozen Eagle River. In desperation, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police ended up hiring a World War I veteran pilot, Wilfred Wap May, to help in the hunt by scouting the area from the air looking for him. May was one of the World War I flying aces who was involved in the last air battle with the man known as the Red Baron and was instrumental in that final air battle against the Red Baron. He arrived on the search in a ski-equipped monoplane on February 5th. May soon discovered that Johnson had crossed the Richardson Mountains where he had been thought to be blocked in when while in the airplane he saw his tracks on the far side of the range. On Valentine's Day, February 14th, he discovered how Johnson was able to maneuver and evade and elude his pursuers. 
he noticed a set of footprints leading off the center of the frozen surface of the Eagle River to the bank. Johnson had been following the caribou tracks in the middle of the river where they walked in order to give them better visibility of approaching predators. Now walking in their tracks, that hidden his footprints and Johnson was able to travel quickly on the compacted snow without even having to use his snowshoes. He left the trail only at night to make camp on the riverbank, which is the track that May had spotted. And when this was radioed back to the Mounties, using this information, they gave chase up the river, eventually locating Johnson on February 17th. The pursuit team rounded a bend in the river to find Johnson only a few hundred yards ahead of them, standing in the middle of the river in front of them. Johnson attempted to run for the bank, but didn't have his snowshoes on and just couldn't quite make it through the deep snow. A gunfight soon broke out where one of the Mountie officers was very seriously wounded. Johnson ended up being killed after being shot in the left side of the pelvis at a very acute angle. It was believed that the bullet passed through some vital tissue and severed a main artery, which led to his death, of course. May was able to land the plane nearby and picked up the injured officer and flew him to get him some medical treatment where he was credited with saving that Maltese life. Now, of course, we have the who of this story, person who was using the name Johnson. Another big mystery that would be answered, it was thought, if you could find out who Johnson was, was the why. Why did this Caucasian man leave the society behind and move to the most northern part of the continent and build a cabin there at the end of the Arctic Ocean? Why did he shoot the officers unprovoked when they came and knocked on his door? It's figured out once we know who the who is, you can fill in the blanks of the Mad Trapper's origin story. Now, with a bit of luck, perhaps the 90-year-old secrets of, the, of Canada's most elusive fugitive might end up being solved. 75 years later, in 2007, Johnson's body was exhumed for a forensic examination, or a very detailed one one of several that had been done over the years since then. Forensic anthropologists found that Johnson's tailbone was not actually symmetrical, causing his spine to curve left and right slightly. In addition, one foot was longer than the other, so he had some bone issues going on there. His real identity, which had been never definitely established, was always questioned in the 1930s, the initial investigation about who this Albert Johnson really was primarily focused on an obscure individual named Arthur Nelson. Nelson, it was known, had guns very similar to what Johnson carried, a Savage Model 99, a 30-30 Winchester lever action rifle, and a 22 long rifle. And it was known he prospected and trapped animals in the western central Yukon area. Uh, he also went by the name Mickey Nelson for some reason. A 1989 book that you can still find called Trackdown 
put forward the theory that Albert Johnson, Arthur Nelson, and another gentleman from North Dakota, USA, repeat criminal by the name of John Johnson. All these men were one and the same person. John Johnson did time in San Quentin prison and Folsom prison, and his physical description is well documented and similar to the Mad Trappers. The writer of this book traced Johnson's identity back to Norway. It was figured that his birth name was Johann Conrad Johnson. However, the Mad Trapper's expensive dental work that he had that was located during the autopsy was not likely to be that of a common criminal. Also, DNA tests later uh, compared to John Johnson's great-nephews disproved that Johnson and the Mad Trapper were the same person. So that was shot down. The Johnston family of Nova Scotia have long believed that Albert Johnson was actually Owen Albert Johnston, a relative who had left there at the beginning of the Great Depression to find work in the United States and then later come back for whatever reason in early 1931. And they never really heard from him. According to a film made about the incident, a relative of this gentleman was tested and DNA didn't match. So another theory was shot down. Another theory was that Johnson may have been a man from Norway who disappeared at 32 years of age in 1927, four and a half years before the chase started. The claim was that this man, Sig Valid, had become obsessed with the idea that the government was looking for him after he evaded conscription in the military during World War I. Yes, possibly a draft dodger that went to hide out in Canada. But still, there is one burning question. Who was this man? Albert Johnson was clearly an alias. In 2007, a forensic team assembled by a film company doing a story on the incident exhumed Johnson's grave. Among the findings of the team was that analysis of his teeth suggested he may have grown up in Scandinavia, but more than likely grew up in the U.S. Midwest. He did have scoliosis, which would have led to chronic back pain. He was about 35 years of age, and he had been struck multiple times in this final gun battle, including in his leg, thorax, and, the, and of course the killing shot that hit him through, came through his pelvis. A spiral fracture in his femur reported one of the stories that the Mounties had said that a bullet had hit and exploded an ammunition pouch on his hip. The dental work, like we said earlier, was of very high quality for the time, suggesting he was able to afford expensive state-of-the-art work at a major city, which would be maybe Chicago or New York. DNA samples were also obtained for comparison, but as of right now, in 2021, when I'm recording this, they have not been able to match up the DNA samples with anybody. And now after the examination was completed, his remains were re-interned with full religious rites by both the local priest and the First Nation native elders, something that had not been done at his original burial. 
While many people had offered convincing circumstantial and anecdotal evidence that they were related to him, the DNA analysis ruled out all of these candidates as being a possible relative, and this man's identity still remains a mystery. Further DNA samples are still being collected and looking for who this guy was. The story caught the public's attention. Here was this lone man on the run in the dead of a brutal winter, living through two very heavy blizzards with hardly anything except what he had on his back, through heavily forested mountains relying on nothing but his wits for survival. It's thought that the story of the Mad Trapper, as the media, like I said, called him, uh, this was the first really big news story broadcast out by electronic means across the continent as it was happening. It really captured the public's imagination. This individual with just the clothes on his back and carrying just a couple of firearms and very little food, he outwitted and outgunned the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in one of the harshest environments on the planet. Time and again, the pursuers thought they had him trapped and cornered. Time and again, he escaped. On the day he shot and killed Trooper Millen, Johnson had been pinned down in a steep canyon, but he was able to scale what was described as a nearly vertical wall, and he disappeared again. And of course, three days later, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, it took a World War I dogfight specialist, the man that helped in the Red Baron's life, to capture Johnson after he had shot another constable. What's the takeaway from this particular story? I guess the main takeaway is that you really shouldn't be surprised at just how much man will do to avoid capture or to get away and what they're capable of enduring and doing in the pursuit of freedom. Do we really need to know who the Mad Trapper was? I guess that depends on how much curiosity you have and what you would do to satisfy that curiosity. At this point, with as much DNA evidence as has been collected and placed in databases, if we haven't found out who this guy is yet through backtracking his relatives or closest relatives, we probably won't. So perhaps it's better to let the mad trapper of Rat River continue being anonymous. You gotta admit it adds to the story. Well, that's it for our Shade of Blue story. Thank you, Rod, for bringing the information to us and giving us the insight into the Mad Trapper. I hope that you found the story interesting. And if you'd like, check out the web pages felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com where you can see some of the books, fiction and nonfiction books that I have out and check out some of the books I'm working on that are coming up hopefully in February of 2022. I'm hoping to have this one published. So stay tuned for that, where you can pick up a Felon File coffee mug or a Felon File t-shirt as far as that goes. Remember, nothing says leave me alone in the morning better than drinking your morning coffee out of a Felon File coffee mug. Be sure to come back next week for another episode of Felon File. 
in another Shade of Blue story. We hope that you will enjoy. In the coming year of 2022, which we're really hoping is going to be better off than 2020 and 2021, which really doesn't have that far to go to be better. Anyway, remember, if you have the opportunity, do something nice for somebody. Go out of your way to help. That's really the right thing to do. It'll help you out and somebody else. And that's really very important. Remember, be safe and secure. And we hope to have you come back for the next episode of Felon File. Victoria, you got the control board again. Close us out. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening. Be sure to go to felonfile.com or scottlunsford.com for more information on Scott's books and where to buy them. Be sure to see the stuff page for t-shirts and coffee mugs. This is Victoria your producer for The Felon File.